This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. This talk is about moral relativism and its relationship to social and political life. First, I'm going to talk, I'm going to try to explain what relativism is. Second, I'm going to make some remarks concerning what people are relativists about. Third, I'll say a lot of things about relativism, about morality, moral relativism, including why we don't need it. Finally, I'll wrap things up with a thought about why life is better without relativism. So relativism, roughly speaking, is the idea that there is no absolute truth that's the same for everyone, but instead, something is true for one person, but maybe not true for another person. So the opposite of relativism might be called absolutism, if you can remove from that word the political connotations of tyranny, or just the nasty sound of being way too dogmatic. An example of relativism might be if someone said, maybe it's true for you that sex should be reserved for marriage, but it's not true for me. Or, for another example, someone might say, maybe it's true for you that there is no God, but for me, there is a God. Now, right away, we have to be careful not to be tripped up by language. Sometimes, in contemporary English, talking like this is just a way of expressing the fact that people don't agree. So, for example, someone might say something like this. For the Greek philosopher Plato... Humans have a soul that survives death. But for the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, there is no soul at all. And all that they would mean if they said that was this. Plato believes that humans have a soul that survives after death, and Hobbes does not believe it. Right? Someone who said this would not actually be asserting that one thing was really true for Hobbes, while another thing was really true for Plato. And even though they said for Plato, blah, 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 for Hobbes, blah, 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 they could say this while believing that Plato was right or that Hobbes was right. So right at the outset, we need to make sure that we're clear when we're really talking about relativism and when we're using words that sound like talk about relativism, but are really just a way of expressing the boring old fact that people sometimes disagree. Interestingly, relativism rejects the idea that people disagree. If I say it's true for me that God exists, and you say that it's true for you that God doesn't exist, we aren't disagreeing. It's similar to when I say that my favorite ice cream flavor is coffee, and you say yours is chocolate. We aren't disagreeing. We're expressing our preferences. Likewise, if relativism is true, then when people say God exists for me but not for you, they aren't discussing disagreement, but in a sense, the idea that people live in parallel realities. I suspect that the very notion of relativism makes no sense at all. By that, I don't mean that I think that relativism is false, but something stronger. I suspect that relativism is meaningless, but I don't want to get into that in this talk. I want to just assume that relativism makes sense and then discuss a few issues. What people are relativists about, why people think that relativism is so important, 
And finally, why we can do just fine without relativism. There are different kinds of relativism, and they can be distinguished by what the relativism is about. A super strong version of relativism says that every truth is relative and that there are no absolutes or non-relative truths anywhere. It's true for me that eating meat is okay, but it might not be true for you. It's true for me that the Bible is inspired, but it might not be true for you. It's true for me that two plus two is four, but it might not be true for you. So let's call this total relativism. Total relativism seems like a hopeless theory because it undermines itself. If total relativism is true, then everything that's true is true only in a relative way, including total relativism itself. But if total relativism is only relatively true, then it might not be true for me. Okay, so everybody's heard that argument, right? We've all probably made that argument at a party, right? Okay, <laughs> let's leave total relativism behind. It's not an interesting theory. Much more interesting are various types of what we might call partial relativism. A partial relativist theory says that some truths are relative, but not all. So for example, someone might say that political truths are relative, but mathematics and physics aren't. In some realms, there are absolute truths, but in others, truth is relative. The first thing to say is that partial relativism is not self-undermining. If you say that only some truths are relative while others are absolute, then you can say that partial relativism itself is one of the absolute truths. Partial relativism doesn't apply to partial relativism itself, but that's okay because partial relativism never said that all truths are relative. The second thing to say is that although partial relativism isn't self-undermining, that doesn't mean it's true. It might still be false, just for some other reason. The third thing to say is that there are many different possible kinds of partial relativism. For any partial realm of beliefs you can think of, there could be a partial relativism applied to that realm. So someone could say that not all truths are relative, but moral truth is always relative. Someone could say that not all truths are relative, but truths about art and literature are always relative. Someone could say that not all truths are relative, but truths about religion are always relative, and so on. Partial relativism that focuses on morality or ethics is extremely common in our society this kind of relativism is called ethical relativism or moral relativism. Many people believe in moral relativism or any way they think they do. I want to focus on moral relativism for a while. Moral relativism says that although not all truths are relative, moral truths are. Claims about what is right or wrong are never absolutely true. They are only true for this or that person. It may be true for you that lying is always wrong, but that doesn't mean it's true for me. Now, why would someone believe in moral relativism? One reason you sometimes hear is this. People don't agree about morality, so therefore morality is relative. Or here's another version of the same kind of thought. 
You can't convince other people about right and wrong. So therefore, morality is relative. This is not a good reason for believing in moral relativism. Just because people can't agree on some truth doesn't mean that the truth isn't objective. It might be out there in all its absoluteness and glory without everyone being able to agree on it. Maybe it's out there, but really hard to see. Maybe it's out there, but some people are blind or stupid or whatever. <laughs> Maybe it can be proved, but the proofs are really complicated and most people can't follow them. Or maybe it can't be proved, but it's true anyway. In short, the fact of disagreement or the fact that it's so difficult to convince others on moral questions doesn't prove there's no truth. It doesn't prove that there's nothing to disagree about or to prove. There's a lot more to be said about whether moral relativism is true. To give a full account, we would have to start by thinking through important background questions, like what morality is in the first place. Then we would have to look at all the arguments people offer for thinking that moral claims are relative. Then we would have to ask how those arguments could be responded to and what a good non-relative theory of morality would look like. To discuss all of that would take all night. In fact, it would probably take a number of one semester courses. So I can't go into all that. Luckily, I think it's okay not to do so, um, at least for present purposes. That's because as far as I can tell, almost no one actually believes in moral relativism. They may say they do, but really they don't. They don't, for example, think that it's just relative whether torturing small children is wrong. I say this to their credit, if I said to them, well, it's true for me that torturing small children is acceptable, they would say, sorry, pal, it's not true for you. And if you think it is, then you are seriously wrong. Admittedly, there are a few people who really do believe in moral relativism, but pretty much they're all professional philosophers. That tells you something. <laughs> I think that most people who seem to be relativists actually are something else. They are people who believe in moral non-relativism, but they use the language of moral relativism as a weapon for warding off certain evils. It will be easier to make clear what I mean by giving an example. Let's suppose you see three people in the street, Rocky, Nick, and Ella. Rocky is stoning Nick to death because Nick committed fornication. Ella says, hey, stop, Rocky. Stoning Nick is wrong. You shouldn't force your values on him. Don't you know that what's wrong for you might be right for him? Morality is relative, so you have no right to act that way. By the way, if you're having trouble keeping track of the names, Rocky is the guy who is stoning someone. <laughs> Nick is the guy who committed fornication. And Ella is the relativist. Get it? Okay. I don't think it would be too surprising to hear Ella say these things. But notice something weird. Ella is telling Rocky that it's wrong to stone Nick for committing fornication. Ella is obviously not a moral relativist. But then Ella goes on to affirm moral relativism 
in her attempt to get Rocky not to commit a moral wrong. Ella is using moral relativism in order to support a non-relative moral claim. She's using moral relativism in support of moral non-relativism. I said that this is weird. It's actually worse than weird. It's incoherent and self-undermining. Above, I said that moral relativism, whatever its flaws might be, isn't self-undermining in itself. And I'm not backing away from that here. I am saying, however, that it's self-undermining to use moral relativism in defense of moral absolutism. If your appeal to moral relativism is true, then you shouldn't be using it to support a non-relative moral claim. In fact, if Ella makes that mistake, Rocky can simply turn to her and say, is morality really relative? Well then, it's right for me to stone Nick. Well, why would Ella act in this incoherent and self-undermining way? For one thing, probably she hasn't attended enough Thomistic Institute lectures. <laughs> But I think there's something else going on that deserves reflection. Ella is trying to prevent Rocky from wrongly interfering in Nick's life. Ella thinks either that Rocky shouldn't interfere with Nick's choices at all, or that he's interfering in the wrong way. For example, maybe Ella thinks that it would be okay for Rocky to ask Nick out for coffee and have a little chat about sexual morality but that bashing Nick's head in is taking things too far. Now perhaps you can start to see the connection with politics. When Ella makes use of the language of moral relativism, she does so to foster a certain political good, namely the preservation of a space within which people can make certain choices without fear of suffering violence. But since she really does think that that political good is an objective good, she isn't a relativist, and her appeal to relativism is part of an attempt to accomplish something non-relativistic. Let's help Ella find a way out by distinguishing Ella's tool from Ella's goal. Ella's goal is to protect Nick from a certain kind of interference. Ella's tool is the affirmation of relativism, as we've seen. Ella's choice of tool undermines her goal but we can ask whether a different tool might enable Ella to reach the same goal, namely the goal of protecting Nick from interference. One alternative tool is the distinction between making an ethical claim and forcing people to go along with an ethical claim. You can think that something is morally wrong without thinking that it's right to force other people to conform. For example, I think fornication is morally wrong, but I don't think I have any right to force people not to commit fornication. Likewise, you can think that something is morally obligatory without thinking it's right to force others to conform. I think that helping your parents when they are old is morally obligatory, but I don't think I have any right to force people to help their parents when they're old. Notice, by the way, that when we talk about forcing people, this can take two forms non-political and political. Rocky is trying to force Nick to not act in a certain way, but actually he's not doing so politically. He would be forcing him politically if he tried to get Nick's behavior criminalized. I'm sort of assuming that, you know, mob violence is not really a political act. 
So this distinction between making a claim and enforcing a claim might sound obvious. And maybe in the abstract it is, but in practice, people get confused. If you merely make a moral claim, people will sometimes say things like, how dare you try to force your values on me? So for example, suppose someone says, I think it's wrong to commit fornication. The person who says this might not be trying to force anything on anyone. But we all know it wouldn't be surprising if someone else reacted by saying, how dare you force me to act in accordance with your values? This isn't really a logical reaction, but it happens all the time. Avoiding it requires mental discipline. Perhaps you can guess already the way I think that this is relevant to our topic here. Ella doesn't need to appeal to moral relativism in order to get Rocky to refrain from using force on them. She can hold on to moral absolutism but then appeal to the principle that knowing that, something, that knowing that someone is acting wrongly doesn't give you a right to force them to act in a certain way. This is a much more logical strategy for her because it isn't self-undermining and incoherent. Likewise, shifting to the political level, Ella doesn't need to appeal to moral relativism in order to dissuade Rocky from criminalizing Nick's behavior. She can firmly embrace moral absolutism including moral absolutism about fornication, but then say that although fornication is wrong, it's not the sort of wrong thing that should be criminalized. The point in both cases is that she doesn't need relativism to get Rocky to not interfere with Nick's life. Okay, that was the first alternative tool. The distinction between making a moral claim and forcing someone to go along with your moral. Once you see the difference, you don't need relativism anymore. Before going on to the second tool, however, I want to say something about the question of interference in other people's lives. I have granted that some interference is bad, but I don't want to give the impression that I think that it's always wrong to interfere with others' decisions. First, I think it's fairly clear that at least sometimes it's acceptable and even obligatory to tell someone that they're going astray. I know that my life has been improved by other people calling me out on things, and I hope I would have the guts and the charity to do the same for others. Second, there really are times when we have to not just tell people that what they're doing is wrong, but block their actions. Sometimes we really have to intervene. In the silly example I gave earlier, Ella should not just argue with Rocky she should try to grab his arms and make him stop. Third, there really are some times when immoral behavior needs to be criminalized. Stealing cars or shooting people should be against the law. Of course, this paper hasn't even begun to make clear when interference is good and what kind of interference is good. I just wanted to point out that I'm not trying to say that it's never good. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. It's a difficult question. Okay, with that out of the way, let's turn to the second tool, the one that is nicely captured in the slogan, love the sinner and hate the sin. It's amazing how few people really understand this. People often think, quite rightly, that we should have a loving attitude towards everyone. And they notice that people who criticize other people's moral behavior often do so in a harsh and unloving way. 
So in order to get people to act in a loving way, they decide that it's bad to form negative judgments about people's behavior. If there's no such thing as sin, then you can't hate sinners because there are no sinners to hate. In other words, they see moral relativism as a pathway to love. This might be behind Ella's rebuke of Rocky. She wants Rocky to love Nick, not hate him, and she sees that Rocky's mistreatment of Nick is rooted in the fact that Rocky doesn't like Nick's sins. So she tries to convince Rocky that there's no such thing as sin because moral truth is relative. This will, she hopes, reorient Rocky's way of thinking so that he can love Nick. It's a strange but powerful fact that in this case, Ella has actually accepted the idea that we should hate sinners. Rocky thinks we should hate sinners, and he believes in sin, so therefore he thinks he should hate Nick. Ella agrees with Rocky that we should hate sinners if there are any, but she also thinks it's bad to hate people, so she concludes that there aren't any sinners. But maybe Ella and Rocky are both wrong. Maybe we shouldn't hate sinners. Maybe we should love sinners, but hate their sins. If Ella could learn to think like this, then she wouldn't have to appeal to moral relativism to defend Nick from Rocky. She could point out that although Nick's behavior needs improvement, we should still try to love and help him. Resorting to relativism isn't needed for this. I've just suggested two ways of thinking that would allow Ella to protect Nick without resorting to moral relativism. Before leaving this topic, I'd like to bring up a possible objection to what I've been saying. Perhaps these alternate tools cannot be used in place of relativism as a way of protecting Nick from illegitimate interference. Why? Because perhaps even making and expressing a moral judgment is already a form of illegitimate interference. In other words, maybe the mere act of telling you that your actions are wrong is all by itself already an unacceptable interference in your life. If that were true, then the alternative tools would not be enough. My first response to this is to say that even if voicing moral disagreement was illegitimate interference, moral relativism isn't needed to block it. Instead, we could just have a moral rule that people should keep their moral judgments to themselves. In other words, we could say that morality is absolute and it's okay for Rocky to disagree with Nick's behavior so long as he doesn't voice this opinion. So if merely voicing disagreement counts as unfair meddling in others' lives, the solution needn't be relativism. It could be just silence. My second response is to wonder about the psychological toughness of people who can't handle it when others disagree with them. Now, I do understand that some people have thin skin, and I don't think it's nice to be mean to people with thin skin. Some people think it's a kind of virtue to be mean to thin-skinned people. I, I don't think that's right. Okay, so it's not nice to be mean to people with thin skin, but even so, having really thin skin is a fault. It's not a virtue. I should be able to deal with it when you disagree with me. For example, I think it's okay to eat meat. Maybe you don't. Well, 
if you think that eating meat is wrong, you should be able to tell me that. Obviously, you have to choose the right time and the place. Obviously, you should do it in a polite fashion. Obviously, you should consider the possibility that it would be wiser to say nothing and let me figure it out on my own. Maybe you can tell, actually, I am so amazingly sensitive that you might, I might have a nervous breakdown if you brought this up. So you think on balance it's better not to. There are always specific considerations that need to be thought through. But it remains the case that in principle, you have a right to voice your disagreement. It might make me uncomfortable. It might make me feel a bit pressured. But part of being a grown-up is dealing with the fact that people don't always agree with you. If I can't get through life without requiring everyone to be really nice to me all the time, then maybe I'm the one with the problem. Maybe instead of resorting to moral relativism, I should spend a lot more time backpacking or join the army or whatever it takes to toughen me up. Above, I said that Ella's appeal to moral relativism was incoherent inasmuch as she is appealing to it in order to make a point about morality. But now I want to discuss a more subtle version of Ella's approach, one that might not suffer from this flaw Maybe she isn't a total moral relativist. Maybe she's just a relativist about some moral issues. In particular, maybe her idea is this. Morality is absolute whenever your actions affect other people. But when your actions affect only yourself, then morality is relative. In other words, this theory holds that interpersonal morality is absolute but personal morality is relative. So, for example, the obligation not to kill innocent people isn't one of those things that's true for some people but not true for others because it concerns others. But, for example, the obligation not to get outrageously drunk or not to use pornography would be one of those things that's true for some people but not true for others because it concerns only yourself. If my actions concern only me, then whether they are right or wrong is just true for me. This theory is not self-defeating in the way that Ella's first approach was. However, there are three considerations that make it seem pretty unimpressive. First, are there any good reasons for thinking that personal morality is relative while inter interpersonal morality is absolute? It's just not clear why we should believe this. If it's wrong to harm others, why isn't it also wrong to harm myself? Aren't I a person too? For example, binge drinking will definitely hurt me, and that's wrong. The fact that the person is me would seem to be irrelevant. Second, the distinction between personal and interpersonal morality is not as clear as people sometimes wish to believe. If I harm myself, that will have spillover effects that affect other people as well. The idea that I can become lazy or greedy or hedonistic without harming others is pretty naive. Third, I'm pretty sure that the real motive behind saying that personal morality is relative is the thought that actions that affect only me, if there really are any, are actions that other people shouldn't interfere with. Well, 
If interference is the issue, then we should return to the points we were making before. In order to argue that interference is bad with regard to a certain realm of action, it's not necessary to say that moral relativism, relativism holds sway in that realm. One can just as easily stick to moral absolutism, but then add first that making a moral judgment doesn't mean forcing the other person to abide by it, and second, that we can hate the sin without hating the sinner. So overall, even though there's no incoherence in this second, more sophisticated version of Ella's position, I mean the version that distinguishes personal from interpersonal morality, it's still not a very convincing position. Let me take the analysis one step further. I have suggested that people adopt a relativistic stance or use relativistic language in order to block what they see as unjust interference. But there might be a, a deeper issue. There's a certain attitude towards life that I think is now quite common in our society. I call it feelings management. The idea of feelings management is that the task of living consists in managing your feelings so that on balance they're as positive as they can be. I've chosen the word feelings on purpose to straddle both emotions and physical sensations. Feelings management is concerned with both and figuring out how they are related is a crucial task for feelings management. For example, running a marathon is pretty unpleasant, but having run a marathon gives you a sense of accomplishment bragging rights, and so on. For some people, the negative sensations of pain and fatigue involved in running the race just don't outweigh the positive emotions at the end. While for other people, they do. And of course, you don't just have to balance physical sensations against emotions. You also have to balance physical sensations against other physical sensations and emotions against other emotions. It's very complicated. But anyway, feelings management is about somehow juggling your physical sensations and your emotions in such a way that overall, you end up feeling as good as possible. I think that for a lot of people, trying to live a good life means being a good feelings manager. You try to avoid feeling physical pain, but perhaps a little physical pain is a price worth paying for the sake of being healthier. You enjoy your successes, but you try to avoid gloating about them. Because when other, feel, other people feel bad in comparison, then you end up feeling guilty. You try to avoid feeling guilty, but maybe a little bit of guilt, guilt helps to spur you on to accomplish something satisfying. The ultimate test, however, through the whole thing, is how it makes you feel. Now notice when I first gave the example of running a marathon, I noted that running a marathon seems to be a good choice for some feelings managers, but a bad choice for others. What works for you might not work for me. This really does seem to be a realm where relativity reigns. To generalize now, if life is all about feelings management, then anything that affects our feelings is a candidate for relativism and surely moral judgments affect our feelings. So maybe feelings management is a further explanation 
of why people are attracted to moral relativism. If a certain moral ideal is too challenging, if I keep feeling, if I keep failing and feeling guilty, or if adhering to it means I'll have to miss out on pleasures I'm unwilling to give up, then I can just say that that moral ideal isn't true for me. Moral relativism is great for minimizing and even eliminating guilt. If, on the other hand, I like behaving in a certain way, then maybe I will decide that this way of acting is right for me. Once I've decided that, I will feel even better about that kind of action, and I will be more likely to persist in doing it. But notice, if the bottom line concern is how I feel, then there won't be any sense in thinking about morality as something objective or absolute, but only about how it works for me. If you'll forgive a brief side remark, I'd like to say that this also applies to forms of relativism that are not moral relativism. Some people think, or anyway say, that the existence of God is relative or that human nature is relative. No one would ever say that the existence of gravity was relative or that the nature of copper was relative. So why be a relativist about God or human nature? The answer seems to be feelings management. Like the, the composition of copper does not affect anybody's feelings. Anyway, back to the main line of thought. There are certain deep philosophical issues that are hard to argue about. Usually the way you, usually the way you try to settle a dispute is by appealing to some deeper principle. For example, you can sometimes settle a dispute in engineering by appealing to some principle of physics or chemistry. But in philosophy, pretty much by definition, you are trying to get as close to the foundations as you can. At a certain point, you can't appeal to principles any deeper than the ones you are considering because you've already hit the foundation. This doesn't mean that there's no truth about the matter, and it doesn't mean that it can't be discovered, but it does mean that making progress is very difficult. I think we're now close to being at that sort of point. I don't think that living a good life is a matter of feelings management. I think it's about fully living out the kind of being that we are, a rational animal of a certain sort. Just as there's a way for chickens to flourish or to fail to flourish, so too, there is a way for humans to flourish or fail to flourish. Morality, in my view, and this is more or less Thomistic thing to say, is a matter of flourishing, and wrong actions are those in which we fail to actualize ourselves in the right way, those in which we fail to flourish, probably also thereby harming others or harming ourselves, or most likely both. Anyway, if that's right, or anything close to right, then feelings management is just the wrong approach to life. Goal of life isn't to feel good, because we all know it's possible to feel pretty good while doing things that aren't good, while doing things that are not indeed good examples of being human. And we also know it's possible to train ourselves to feel good about bad things. I have claimed that people appeal to relativism in order to promote social or legal tolerance, I have claimed that doing so is self-undermining, and I have claimed that it isn't necessary. 
I have also claimed without much in the way of argument or even discussion that relativism is false. Anyway, I would like to conclude by suggesting that relativism is actually harmful. Relativism is harmful because it means in the end that there's no right or wrong way to live your life. If there's no right or wrong way to live, then there's no such thing as success or failure. No such thing as a life lived well or a life lived badly. If that's so, then in a very important sense, life is meaningless. It might be enjoyable or unenjoyable, but that's not the same thing. Indeed, although above, I suggested that many people use relativism as part of feelings management, there have been philosophers for whom relativism was a source of suffering. Nietzsche, I think, would be an example. My point, at any rate, is that appeals to relativism aren't just bad arguments. They also contribute to the general feeling that life is pointless. That's not good. Isn't the incidence of misery, depression, and suicide high enough? I think we'd do better to drop all this relativism talk and relearn how to talk about what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Yes, people don't agree on what that is. It might lead, lead to conflict, but it's not as if we don't have conflict now. All of this is, of course, only the beginning of a long investigation. Moral relativism can ultimately be overcome only through a positive view of what ethics is about, and also through getting the contents of that ethics right. You have to see that life isn't about feelings management, and you have to see that ethical principles involve not only moral judgments about what's right and wrong, but also social and political judgments about when it is and isn't legitimate to interfere with others' decisions. If we'll get all that straight, we'll no longer be tempted by relativism. Instead, we'll be drawn to the truth. Thank you. Well, I don't think Rawls wants to have a complete kind of relativism, right? It's just that he thinks you've got to like really restrain yourself in the public sphere. Um, so I think in a sense, I mean, leaving aside all of the extremely important details about whether Rawls's approach is a good approach. I'm not even addressing that, right? I'm just trying to focus on this particular point that you're making here. Um, I mean, he's not like a maximal um, libertarian, right? Yeah, so in, like, just in practical terms, it's an argument about what we should agree to be neutral on. Almost every society agrees that there's some stuff that we just let people decide for themselves, right? I mean, it's pretty hard to imagine you could think of trying to have an, a completely totalitarian society, but you're still going to let people put their left shoe on before their right shoe or the other way, or something, you know? So, I mean, in a sense, I don't, I don't mean that it's merely a difference of degree, because, first of all, it matters which ones you pick, and large differences in degree are important. Nonetheless, I, don't, I think for somebody like him, 
It's just a question of how much space he wants to leave neutral and what he wants it to be neutral on. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm asking about the, the interaction between, like, to say political relativism. Uh, to say, because when you say that there is a gray area, you're saying in that area that either there is a truth there or we don't know. And is that a good political value? So I'm not a Rawls expert. I mean, does he insist that we, like, hold as like positively hold the view that no one knows? Or just that for political purposes, we treat it as if it's it's like not, not a thing that well, gets imposed it, on people. It's, it's treated politically as either a question, a moot question, because if you don't say one thing or another, it's either I don't know or nobody knows. For political purposes? Yes. Right, but that's consistent with holding that we do know very well what's to be done about this. It's just that it's not one of the things that you can force on other people. Right? Maybe I'm missing some aspect of this. No, you do Okay. Um, I'm just curious, like, since humans do have emotions and feelings, like, how do you kind of adhere to that fact, like, be, be willing to, like, Okay, so 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 are are you are you talking about the part of the paper where I talked about where sometimes you have to like challenge people? Uh, what when you said like you were talking about like specifically the feelings, like the gold button and all that stuff, feel good and happy, like you know, our we should not place such an emphasis on them. However, like they are present, so how do you like approach them but not make them be the sole purpose of like Yeah, well I mean Tough question, right. So um, like people's emotions, their feelings, their passions are like it's a part of being human um, and it's a good part of being human, but they have to be, um, I mean, I feel like I'm just gonna sound like such a cliched philosophy professor, but like, you know, they have to be subordinated to reason, right? So you have to have feel the right way at the right time and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's just a, a fact of life that pretty much all of us at least sometimes have emotions that are out of whack with what they should be. Um, some of us have this problem more than others, but almost everyone has it at least a little bit. Um, how to deal with it in yourself and other people is a complicated question. And often you have to be practical about it. Um, I remember once a friend of mine, we were driving in a car somewhere. I don't remember where we were going, but it was not like a 10 minute drive. You know, it was gonna be a few hours. And we were both pretty grumpy and that sort of became clear in the first two or three minutes of the drive. I guess we were both like really underslept or something. And neither of us said anything, but we just kind of stopped talking. <laughs> and we could just, I could tell that he was thinking the same thing I was thinking. We're friends, let's not fight just cause we're tired and in a bad mood, right? So that was a highly pragmatic way of handling the situation. And I don't think that's always bad. I mean, in the long run, you're trying to train yourself. Am I addressing, I feel like I'm not really addressing what you're getting at. See, I thought you were talking about a different part. Kind of just like, where's the balance between like, we are human beings and like, like let's say you enter the political conversation with someone, like, what is the best way to go about without getting too 
Like heated, like yeah. Like, how do you understand that they still feel like they're a human person and not like attack them? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So dealing with okay, of course we're going to assume that we ourselves are paragons of rationality, <laughs> right? But if the problem is that there's these other people and they their these emotions interfere with their ability to engage in discussions on political topics or something. I don't know whether anybody's noticed that over like the past year and a half. A lot of Americans have been really, really emotional about a lot of topics. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's not true in this part of the country, but it's part. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's complicated and it's pragmatic. I mean, some people are just so uh, you know pissed off or so partisan all the time that they're, in a sense, they're not really very honest reasoners at all. I mean, I hate to say that, but I think sometimes it's true. They give, they pull arguments out because they know it will push their side. And whether the arguments are good arguments or not, it's not a really big thing to them. They'll never admit that they're wrong. If they make a mistake in the argument, they won't go, oh, 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 you're right. I take that part back. No, they just, they just keep going or they change the topic to something else where they have a hope of being right. It's all about winning for them. So people like that are extremely hard to deal with. And I don't know whether, there's a lot of times you sort of can't. Now, but if um, we're dealing with people who are not quite so overwhelmed by their, their desires or their fears, um, then it's sort of more a question of being, if you know what I mean, polite about it. You're trying to sensitive, try to be sensitive. Don't use arguments that you know will make them angry. If you're going to say something that will make them angry or upset, kind of like, you know, phrase it in a different way, try to find a way, concede something first and then make the little point and then say, but on the other hand, right? So there's all kinds of ways of softening the blow. And, you know, there's a much broader, I want to see two more things about this, a much broader issue here is that your chances of having a serious heart to heart with somebody on a serious topic go up astronomically if they think that you love them. Or, and if they think that you can be like friends with them. So if you work on being on friendly terms with people, like sincerely friendly terms, right? Not just like tricking people into thinking that you like them so that you can convert them to your cause, but really sincerely caring about them, then you've created a space in which they can actually afford to have a real conversation with you. They know it's okay to back down because you're not gonna like plunge in and cut their throat. So that was the first thing I wanted to add. The second thing, of course, was just to go back to the joke I made at the beginning. It's good to realize that I have these problems too, right? Each of us has to look in the mirror and say, you know, I sometimes like, I argue for victory. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, I disagree with people just because they annoy me or what, or I don't like admitting what I'm wrong. So we all have this problem too. And sometimes we're, can, we're pouring our own fuel on the fire. Does that help? I mean, it's just sort of a pragmatic thing, but on a deep level, it's almost like a spiritual thing. You know, you have to just decide whether other people are potential friends and people that you're willing to try to love or just people that you want to destroy. <laughs> and it's a really important decision to make. Is it even possible to have a moral argument with someone who's Committed his life to feelings management. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
you'll wonder sometimes, right? <laughs> because when you talk, I mean, I know what you're saying, right? You talk to people and they just filter, it always seems, that filter just keeps coming back. It's like, well, you know, that wouldn't, I just could never, um, you know, imagine myself being happy that way, right? And it's like, yeah, I mean, I know what you mean, but like we weren't talking about what would make you feel happy. We were talking about, you know, whether humans have free will or whatever, right? And so like, it's just, yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, probably, I mean, I don't have anything really good to say about that, except maybe this. It may be that for a lot of people, what they need is not um, to find, to run into someone who will find the magic argument that will convince them. Something else has to happen. Um, what is the slogan that if, if, if you weren't argued into a position, you can't be argued out of it? So people often don't hold their views because of reasons, uh, but for some other reason. So maybe they need to have some other kind of life experience. And it may be completely out of my control to give them that life experience. And probably it might even be like evil to give them that life experience, right? Maybe they just need to come up against some really harsh, cold reality and realize, wow, you know, it's not about my feelings. Or they need differently, maybe they will just notice that other people seem to build their lives around around having a life that's meaningful and truthful regardless of their feelings or something like that. And they'll just sort of notice that as a kind of witness. And it won't be someone's showing off to them, but they'll just notice it. But I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I, but I, I agree with what you're saying. It's a difficulty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. With respect to politics, uh, Dr. Gordon, suppose that we live bring it up to the national level where, for example, the people in Israel and Palestine the recognition of a state and the people involved there and the feelings that they do feel like a country, but the recognition of international law not recognizing that they are a country. To what extent can they argue, or a people, a nation argue, that the truth of the fact of their living condition is what it is, but other people do not agree with that? Because in one sense, a political argument would be based off of relative identity of whatever individual is of the nation. Sorry, I feel like I'm just pausing because I'm not, I mean, I'm, partly I'm trying to decide whether I should make a joke along the lines of, if you think you're going to get me to commit on the Israel-Palestine thing with a recorder running, you're crazy. But, um, but no, I know, I know. That's why it would be a joke. I'm trying to, I mean, look, questions of political... In a sense, it's a question about political legitimacy, right? And these are very difficult questions. And as far as I can tell, um, they're kind of dark and not entirely pretty. So usually when you have a place in the world where people live there, someone else used to live there. And often the way those former inhabitants stopped living there, it's not a nice story. That just happens a lot. Um, the transition from, you know, wild independent hooligans to a sort of semi-orderly society involves often, uh, as my friend Brad Lewis likes to say, you know, a guy on a horse with a club. And so, and at a certain point, I don't, I don't know how to put this, 
everybody gets used to it and it seems to be working and it seems to be serving everyone's interests and it seems to be promoting a kind of common good. And then we say like, hey, this is not so bad. Maybe we'll call this our wonderful village rather than, uh-oh, better do what Fred says or he'll hit you. Um, now, so, and then you can, you can try to think of what the principles are behind this. I'm not denying that there are like, you know, legitimate principles of, of um, good and bad regimes. But the way it happens in practice is kind of, sometimes kind of ugly. Um, now, that's just a sort of long waffling way to say, I don't know that there's a way in principle to talk about what you do with these really intransigent problems. Somebody's gonna have to give, or both sides are gonna have to give, and at some point, I mean, either conflict goes on forever or it gets to where everybody kind of comes to be able to live with um, the way it's turned out. And they've, they've just like, they've just accepted like, maybe this is not the best, but I can deal with it. But, and, and then if you try to say, well, like, but show me the logical syllogism why this is justice. I think in practice, a lot of times you don't really get that. Am I addressing your question at all? Okay. In a sense, it's almost as if two friends have different opinions about something, but there is something about, you, you refer to it as feelings. Yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 the passions of political actors are a really important part of the story. You can't, I mean, obviously you can't just give everyone up to their wild passions, right? Because then you're just some kind of big demagogue. But on the other hand, if you just like this totally, you know, robotic political scientist, and you're just like, well, obviously this is how people are going to vote because that's in their self-interest. Can't they see this chart with the GDP on it? You know, it's that's not how it works either. Yeah. So um, you were talking about like the vegetarian and how um, you as a meat eater get kind of thicker skin and hear the reasons from the vegetarian about why not to eat meat or whatever. Yeah. So I wonder sometimes. Sometimes the Okay, so the idea here, I'm just sort of repeating this for the recorder, um, if I, uh, and to make sure I understand, right, is that one of the, the things that leads to arguments being ugly and mean is that people, when they make their first point, it's not just that they are like mean, although, I mean, that's sort of obvious problem. This is sort of more interesting problem that people don't really have their thoughts in order. And, and that probably, like, one thing that probably does is when your thoughts aren't in order, you tend to just fire in all directions. And you're more likely to say something that you actually don't even mean and, and that's kind of like 
causes you know, more hurt or anger than you were even intending to. But also probably, I feel like this is also part of your thought, um, but maybe I'm just reading into it. When you don't have your own thoughts in a row, you yourself feel the tension. When you realize, like, I'm trying to make a big point here, and I don't actually know what the heck I'm trying to say. Now, the best thing to do would be to go, whoa, you know what? I just suddenly realized I'm not really sure what my argument is. Do you want to help me, like, figure out what my argument is, right? But often what you do instead is you just start banging your fist on the table and, like, crank up the volume and throw in a few insults and all. Yeah. So that's, yeah, so maybe relativism. So you would get a sort of simultaneous rise of rage antics and cries about relativism and stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, it's very unfortunate how, I mean, if being able to just calm down and think things through really carefully and soberly is so important. It's just a hugely important thing in human life, in politics, in friendship, in family life, in you know, academic settings and just in a work, any other kind of workplace, like it's just huge. If people can just calm down and figure out what the issue is, you know, and write things on the board and try to figure out what's going on. But um, it's really hard. I don't know for sure. I mean, it's always tempting to say, well, you know, it's never been so bad. I don't know my American history very well. My impression has been significantly worse at times. If I recall, there was a really big war at one point. So, uh, you know, it, it can be worse than it is, but it can also be a lot better than it is. And we can all try to learn to do a better job of it ourselves. And you can try teaching other people. You can model it, as they say. Um, it's one of those words. Um, I mean, you know, every person can contribute to this just by being more a part of the solution and less a part of the problem, right? Every time you just find yourself starting to get hot, just try to dial it back. Um, and am I addressing your, yeah, no, I think that's an important point. People on average do better talking about things that they're, it's harder for them to get angry about. So like, like people raise their voices when they're talking about, you know, realism and nominalism, but it's all in good fun. You just have like a big blowout argument and then you say, let's go have a beer, right? I mean, I've had this conversation with some of my philosophy friends, you know, a thousand times, but we're not really mad because in the end, it doesn't really matter. I can't believe I just said that. But anyway, <laughs> but you know, you can't just have like a calm, cool little discussion with random people about abortion or you can, but it's like in takes intense, um, you know, self-control, that's not even a, a good enough word. It's a kind of self-abnegation or something like that. I don't know. I mean, again, I used that word before. There's a sort of spiritual component to this. You have to learn to become detached from a lot of things and just be able to handle it in a really serene way. And it's just super difficult. Super difficult. And it's not about winning. Yeah. Yeah. 